You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It starts Vader. Watch out. And he's got a lightsaber. It's Kenner's Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I got you now, Ben Kenobi. With R2-D2 and C-3PO. There's even Chewbacca and Han Solo. Someone's coming, Chewie. Who's there? It's Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Now I know the Force is with us. Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO, and other Kenner Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to explore a subject that is a little odd. It is within the Star Wars world, so you guys kind of know in what direction I'm heading. It has to do with collecting merchandise, action figures, and stuff like that, but it's a specific form of merchandise. Merchandise that is, you could call it retro, vintage, or at least it looks that way, and some of the positive or negative implications or aspects of that particular subgenre of collecting and how its name was inspired by a podcast that I listened to. Then we jump over to books. I recently read the novel for The Exorcist and one of the big, gigantic, blatant things that I've noticed about the novel, because I had never read it before, is the portrayal of one particular character. A detective. A detective that sounds when you read it and feels when you read it, not so much when you watch the film, a lot like one of my favorite television detectives, Detective Columbo. So we're going to take a look at those two subjects, but let's begin right away with vintage exploitation. You can collect them all. You! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. Alright, today we're going to explore a different facet of Star Wars collecting, and this is a kind of a weird one, and it is the type of collecting that really falls under a different subgenre of collecting, if you will, and it is a subgenre of collecting Star Wars that not a lot of people are into, and some people are really turned off by it. The term that I'm going to throw at you is a term that I've heard on another podcast that I frequently listen to called the Kivecast. And the term is vintage exploitation. Say that three times fast. Vintage exploitation. And this is a term that I heard one of the hosts of that show, the Kivecast. His name is Sky Payne. And he gives credit to this term to another person that is part of that show and part of the the Star Wars Collecting Archives overall website, you know, where this show kind of spun off from. And his name is Ron Salvatore. Now, what that term, vintage exploitation, refers to is modern produced Star Wars toys that specifically look like vintage Star Wars materials or toys who you could kind of say the purpose is to kind of entice older or maybe even new collectors into this 
kind of nostalgic feelings for something old, but now it's being sold as new. You're not being sold an old product. It's a newly manufactured or remade product that has to look exactly like the older product. Or using older products photography in a way where you are selling it as a new product. So I will give you some examples of this. And if you go to the KaiCast archive of episodes, I would tell you specifically, if you want to get the background on how this whole terminology started, I would say visit episodes 57, 80, 82, and 91. Those are the episodes where they first started to kind of point out these unusual things that started coming out, you know, around a time where, you know, you can kind of tell that they're trying to appeal to, you know, vintage collectors. Now, part of that whole wave of vintage trying to appeal to vintage type of collectors, you can kind of say might have been in more recent days, because I am going to give you older ones centered around the reaction line of action figures. We talked about reaction in the past. Reaction is a wave of figures by Super 7. And I think Funko is also involved in that uh, in terms of these companies that are all kind of connected. Wave that started a couple of years ago, specifically with the Alien line. You know, Alien a long time ago when the movie came out, they Canada was supposed to release a series of action figures, three and three-quarter size, obviously with the popularity of Star Wars. Instead, they didn't. They pulled them back. I mean, granted, it was difficult to market a film like that when it comes to t- child toys. They did put out that gigantic, you know, foot-long alien uh, Kenner uh, doll figure that is super expensive now to find, and it's a, it's a highly prized collectible, but the figures never made it. So a couple years ago, I don't know, five Five years ago, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, eh, maybe around five years ago, five or four years ago, the reaction line came out with these new figures. And since then, the reaction line of figures has spread through many, many different licenses. You have the Terminator, you have Escape from New York, you have Planet of the Apes, and even other companies then spun off on their own, creating these these vintagey looking three and three quarter size, not super detailed, not very articulated, you know, basically five points of articulation, you know, Star Wars style kind of figures. But obviously not Star Wars because Star Wars did have <laughs> a Kenner line to go. So, you know, these companies are, are, are noticing, I guess, at the time that there is a market for people that want to spend money on these, you know, kind of retro vintagey looking action figures and toys. So with the Kivecasts, when they started kind of tracking this, this was a number of years ago, even before this, uh, this was around the time where I believe, let me think about it, uh, Funko Pops put out a series of, of Funko Pop figures, Star Wars theme, but what they did was they kind of mimicked the look of the original Kenner uh, ones And what they did is they had, I think it was like a three-pack of Greedo, Hammerhead, and Walrus Man. And instead of making them look screen accurate, you know, more like what the normal films would look like now, what a modern version of the figure would look like, they purposely sculpted and painted them in a manner that reflected exactly what those original Kenner figures look like. So that was kind of weird at the time, you know, it was like, oh, that's interesting. They're they're kind of paying homage to, you know, the original Star Wars uh, Kenner figures without exactly duplicating them, you know, exactly in that way. Some of the old mini rigs also started showing up on certain video games. I believe the MTV7, the old uh, Empire Strikes Back mini rig, appeared on a video game around that time too. So again, you kind of see a recycling of old toys being brought into a new market. Now granted, that's nothing new when it comes to properties, uh, films, television shows, and that sort of thing. You know, you watch Clone Wars, you watch Rebels, you watch whatever you're watching, you know, every now and then you might see a ship from the original trilogy or a concept ship show up and you're like, whoa, look at that. That's what that is. You know, for example, in I think it was in Rebels that the, the troop, tra- the Imperial troop transport showed up as a new version of itself, you know, in that show. Granted, they didn't duplicate the original toy exactly the same, but they... They, they kind of went pretty far in terms of bringing a, a vintage out of, out of all, you know, especially out of all things, what is to be considered an, an EU 
toy before EU was even a word brought into an an actual episode of a show. Uh, I saw also some comic book page where they had another one of these mini rigs used. uh, 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 Exactly. Exactly. It's the one I forget the name, but it's the one that it's like a little a little tank with two guns and a little bubble top. And I think it was used on some kind of Rebels comic book or some kind of short book or something like that. So you do kind of see these things pop up every now and then. Then later on, the Black Series of figures, you know, as the Black Series of figures, I'm talking about the six, you know, the six-inch figures now, they're, they're becoming very popular. I cannot tell you dollar-wise, uh, you know, profit-wise, if they're as popular as the three and three-quarters, but they are going strong with these. Uh, a couple years ago, they put out a display base, and the display base was made so you can kind of prop your original first 12 figures, you know, their version of the 12 first figures. And the uh, background of that had a a duplicate pretty much of what the original background that they had for, for Star Wars, for the original Kenner, you know, where you could buy that separate little section so you can stand all your figures up. Not sure. I don't remember exactly if that was part of the uh, early bird kit display area. I'm not entirely sure. It could have been. It's, it's a very high chance that that's exactly what it was. So, again, they're kind of fueling this thing. A lot of people also saw the beginning of this many, many years ago with the Gentle Giant, giant figure recreations. Now, if you remember, I don't know exactly how many they've made. I don't know if they've gone through the whole wave yet, the whole, I don't know, what, 92 figures or so. But Gentle Giant started releasing, you know, one figure at a time, all the original Kenner figures done in a gigantic, I don't know, about a foot and a half tall versions of them, you know, really huge. The packaging was made to look a little bit like the original packaging too. I believe they even made a cantina. I'm not entirely sure. I could be making things up here, but but they they they've made some large size accessories, I believe, for those figures. You know, exclude usually Comic Con exclusives or stuff like that, or was it a uh, trash compactor? I don't know. I gotta I gotta figure it out. But anyway, this is another thing where the the term vintage exploitation was thrown around because you know you're appealing to to to, to the collectors. You know, who have a soft spot for the original figures, but now you're selling them the same figure in a super large format, you know, like blown up. Like the detail is huge. Not better detail, just bigger detail of the same detail. You know what I'm saying? Star Wars figures, you know, when you compare them to a modern figure, even for a Kenner figure, you know, compared to a Hasbro figure, there's a big difference. The the, the sculpting is different. The articulation is different now. Quality-wise, they're much better in terms of how the sculpting looks more lifelike. But there's a certain charm to the original sculpt, the simplicity of the sculpt, the fact that you didn't have, you know, I don't know, 17, 20 points of articulation. You only have five, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the Gentle Giant line, again, I'm not entirely sure if they're completed it yet, if they're done with it. I would have to double check, especially with the Return of the Jedi figures. I don't know if they've gone through the entire Return of the Jedi line, but those were very expensive. You're talking about... Maybe a hundred bucks a pop, more or less, depending on the size of the figure. I mean, I I think they even had like a uh, a blue snaggletooth uh, created also. You know, they they did a lot of different uh, offshoots of that, and so that was a pretty cool line. There was also a lot of, and you still might find that to this day, uh, clothing. Clothing where you have a picture or a series of pictures of the original Kenner figures, you know, as part of a t-shirt or maybe shorts or, or pajamas. I think there was a, a like baby gap clothes that was put out. And again, all of these examples uh, were the ones that were originally brought up, you know, if you listen to the podcast. And I'm going to put a couple of uh, links so you guys can kind of at least find this podcast. This is a great podcast. I started listening to them. Oh my goodness, maybe 10 years ago, more or less, I forget. It was around the time where, let me think, right around the time where I decided to start my own podcast, I had already been listening to podcasts for maybe one or two years before that. I had purchased a, um, an iPod, out of all things in the world, and I started listening, 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 and then I got the idea that maybe I should do my own show about something. At the time, I didn't even know what it was about. And then when we attended Celebration Orlando back in 2010... That's when the decision that I made of, okay, this is it. I have to do my own show now. I I think I got it. I know how to do it. I've been listening to him for a few years. And now I attended a few panels during that celebration, the 2010 Orlando. And one specific panel we had, I was able to attend, was from two podcasters who were sharing the stage talking about 
podcasting. One of them was Star Wars Action News. Now, they had been around for a number of years, so they kind of were a little more seasoned, a little more professional, if you will. And the Kivecast had just kind of started, and it was back then, I think it it, it has like different names. Back then, it might have been called the, the Star Wars Archives Collecting Podcast or something like that. But now you'll find it as the Kivecast, or sometimes I, I used to call it Chivecast because I like green onions. And when I see the word Kive, it's I want to pronounce it chives. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Believe it or not, they actually even go into that in, in some of these videos that I've been listening to. But anyway, so they were sharing the stage between Star Wars Action News and the Kivecast, and they were brand new. You know, they had just come on the scene, which was, you know, pretty surprising to me. Like, wow, these guys just started and they were already have a stage presence, you know, in, in a convention, in a Star Wars celebration out of all things. Well, it was really their connection to that other page, the Star Wars Collector's Archive that is run by Gus Lopez. This page has been around for... Possibly over 20 years, I think maybe close to 25 years. I will attach also uh, a link uh, because at the uh, most recent Star Wars Celebration uh, Chicago, they had a 25th anniversary panel for that. I think it was a 25th anniversary panel for the Star Wars Collectors Archive. And they talk about how they they started as, as just a web page and how the web page spun off the podcast that I'm talking about right now which was right around that time. You know, they had only put out, I don't know, maybe one or two or three episodes by the time that celebration was taking place. And they only do it once a month. They're not weekly. They they, they, they put out one once a month and they specialize. That, this is the thing that makes them very interesting for, for, for certain collectors. They specialize in vintage. It's all about vintage. You know, obviously you'll have, they'll have conversations about some more modern stuff here or there. But, you know, I would say 80 or 90% of their conversations is all about the vintage figures and what they normally have been doing is again because they're only doing them once a month they don't have to pump it out so much so fast so they can kind of run out of topics quick but they've been focusing on like one figure per episode you know most recently so that gives them a theme to go through as you listen to their show and and right now i think they're working their way through jedi so i'm not sure how they're going to structure the show once they're done going through all these action figures but what's interesting like i said is that that's where that whole conversation kind of started you know, some of these episodes that I, that I was listening to, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's interesting. Yes, I am noticing that stuff comes out every now and then that is kind of vintagey, but it's kind of like all over the place. You can't just say it's one manufacturer doing, it's multiple manufacturers, you know, every now and then trying to sell you a product that is vintagey looking. Now, here's a couple that I have myself that I've purchased through the years. And a very good example of this, and again, we talked about this a little bit in the past, is the Power of the Force 2 1995 Classic Edition 4-Pack. Now, the year is 1995. The Star Wars marketing machine, the the the, the toy making machine, uh, back then Kenner, which was a subsidiary more or less of Hasbro, but they were still putting the Kenner logo on a lot of these products. They were launching all the new Star Wars product. You know, all these. If you remember the the He Man looking Luke and the He Man looking Leia and all those super beefy, you know, figures. It was around that time. They were uh, putting out ships. They were putting out figures. They had not yet started putting out figures that never were released before. You know, they were kind of starting with the basics. So, you know, people were starting to get pumped about it. And this is also around the time where the special editions are in the horizon. They're working on the special editions. So, oh, you know, all this interest is starting to get generated about Star Wars all of a sudden in the 90s. And this particular pack that I'm talking about, it's a box set, comes with four figures. And I think it includes maybe one, two, three, or four. Uh, if you guys remember the, the Tops White Vision Star Wars cards, it has a couple of top cards in there too. So they were... You can kind of say they were kind of cross-promoting each other. I don't know if the cards are a bonus to the figures or the figures are a bonus to the... I imagine the cards were the bonus. But this is kind of like an unusual package because the package itself says that the figures are cast from the originals, which is interesting because they look really good. You know, I never removed them from the package. I kind of kept them. And I also bought them way, way, way later. I never bought them when they originally were sold in 95. I got them maybe... Uh, geez, uh anywhere from five to ten years ago i would say I, I couldn't tell you exactly when i got them this is more when i started to get back into vintage and again that also i believe happened around that time i think 2010 i've told this story before 
Uh, here we go again. I had my figures. I had a few ships, a few uh, playsets. We moved a few times, kept the figures, lost all of my ships and playsets. Started having kids, gave my son all of my figures. You know, I figure, you know what, I, I, how, do, how do I get him a whole bunch of Star Wars figures without having to go and buy, you know, all the new modern ones? Now, the new modern ones, don't get me wrong, every now and then we'd buy him one or somebody would buy him one or he would, you know, he would get one. But I wanted a way of giving him like a lot <laughs> in one shot without spending too much money. And I'm like, wait a minute, I think I still have my original figures. And again, I opened all my figures. I played the hell out of them. You know, I broke a few. I remember I had a dog that chewed up uh, at least one figure. I might have lost one or two in the process. So I gave my son everything to play with. And then when he got a little older, which would kind of make sense, you know, around, you know, he my son was, was born in 98. So by the time he was around, by the time 2010 came around, which is that convention, you know, he was way kind of done already with, you know, he, I did not, I lasted a lot longer than <laughs> In <laughs> 12 years, my interest in Star Wars still goes on today. But I did kind of wean off of Star Wars when I was a, a, a later teenager. I would say by the time I was like 13 or 14 or 15, because that's around the time where the Power of the Force line, the original Power of the Force line, the last 17, the ones I could never find, were coming out and they were super hard to find. And I kind of lost interest. You know, there were no more movies in the horizon. So I kind of gave up on Star Wars and I kept, but I kept, you know, I kept whatever I had. So my son, again, around this time, you know, he was around, I don't know, maybe he was around 10. You know, he kind of started losing interest. Yeah, you had, you know, he 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 kind of grew up with the prequels. You know, he was born like a year before Phantom Menace. And he kind of grew up with the prequels. I remember I edited a couple of the Star Wars films, especially the original ones. I edited them down because he was way too young. And I edited down like the violent, the most violent, shocking parts on VHS. So he can watch them without being super shocked, you know, without seeing Luke's hand being cut off and, you know, the really scary parts. So, uh, again, this was when he was a little older, he started, you know, all this stuff started coming out on DVD and, you know, and so he was able to watch them. But going back to these original toys, you know, he started getting other toys, other lines, and he kind of got tired of the my old Star Wars beat-up figures. And he beat the crap out of them, too, just like I did. So I, I'm left with this bag of Star Wars figures and... Around that time, 2010, you know, celebration, I'm seeing Star Wars Action News, I'm seeing the Kybecast, I'm seeing all these things, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I want to do it. And around that time is also when I started reconstituting my collection. I said, all right, you know what, you don't want these back? I want to be able to see how many I got left, and I want to start displaying them somewhere. And I had a case that I kept, I used to keep micro machines in them, and actually I used to keep other lines, I used to keep Star Trek Playmate figures, uh, and all kinds of other collectibles. So I emptied them out, and I'm like, all right. This case is now going to be my Star Wars action figure original case. So I started, you know, putting them in there and come up with a, a list of things that I needed because I realized uh, a lot of these are broken. A lot of them are missing. The last 17 I never got. So then I started around that time as I was going to the, to the convention. That was around the time where I started saying, oh, you know what? Let's let's see if we can pick up a couple of vintage. That's when I kind of kind of fell back into vintage collecting. And it's been going ever since. I would say, again, this is 2019. So at least for the last nine or 10 years, I've been going back to vintage. So as I got back into vintage, all of a sudden I started noticing, oh, wait a minute, didn't they produce something? Like, yes, they did. A couple of years before that, they produced these this four pack. So I got this four pack, you know, and like I said, I have it unboxed. But what's interesting about this four pack is that even though it says that they're made from the original sculpts, I watched a video recently that compares them. Somebody actually opened them up and compared them to the original. They're smaller. The figures are actually smaller. The guns are not the same material. They're kind of, I don't want to say rubbery, but very soft plastic as opposed to the original. The, the original plastic used for Kenner was a little more brittle, I guess, a little harder. Maybe a different shade of color too. I mean, the figures look kind of good, you know. If you're not a crazy super collector, you know, you look at him and you're like, well, that's, that's, that's damn pretty good. But when you put side by side an original and one of these figures, there's a difference. There's a difference in size. So I don't understand how they can make the claim that they're sculpted from the original when you then look at them and they have two different sizes. They're slightly smaller. The other thing about them is that in the leg, in the back of the leg, you know, the date stamp on them is 1995. So that's good in a way because at least you cannot fake them being, you know, Try to sell them off as if they're original when they're not. So that's kind of neat. But anyway, I like them because they're carded in a way. You know, I know they're not individual cards, but 
it's a way of owning a representation of what these original things look like, which will come in very handy very recently because something like this is about to happen again very, very soon any day now. Another item, not as old as that, but more recent item that, that I would say within the last two, three years, maybe two years, Walmart put out of all places in the world an ottoman. Now, Walmart and, and places like Target and, and, and you know those kind of stores, they sell these generic ottomans that come flat and then you just kind of assemble the box, put a bottom on it and then put the very heavy top, the padded top. And now you have an ottoman that you can put anywhere. You can fill it with whatever junk you want to fill it. Well, Walmart put out one. I forget the name of the company that manufactured it. I don't know. It might be under the Walmart banner for all I know. That is basically four sides of Star Wars action figures. It's pictures of Star Wars original Kenner figures splattered all over the sides. You have, let's see, I'm looking at it right now. There's a Luke, there's a Obi-Wan, there's a Han, there's a Leia, there's an R2C3PO and a Chewbacca. And then the lid on top, the padded lid, you know, it has the Star Wars logo, but it also has Vader surrounded by stormtroopers. So that's a cool little weird item, if you think about it. It's like, wow, this is an unusual item. Why would anybody make this? So I, I, I was able to get one. I had to order it because my local Walmart wasn't carrying it, you know, on the store, but uh, walmart.com had it. So that was kind of neat. I forget how much that was. It must have been like maybe 15 or 20 bucks. Then, probably around that time too, Spencer's, that store that you probably find in every mall, more or less, that sells all kinds of weird, junky, teenagery. <laughs> <laughs> adultish kind of products, they put out a backpack. Again, similar to this. I forget how much it cost. I mean, it could have been, again, anywhere from 20 to 30 bucks. And it's a lot of figures. It's it, the, the shape of the backpack is like your generic cheapy school backpack, like the cheapest, most generic, you know, no frills backpack. However, the print on them is completely covered head to toe in figures. And this one, as opposed to the uh, Ottoman, uh, this one has figures from all of them. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have every figure, but it has a representation of Star Wars Empire and Jedi. So you do get an interesting, you know, selection, including a couple Last 17 figures in there too, you know, of, of that line. Now, I wouldn't recommend using this backpack if you're going to do some serious backpack usage because, like I said, it is your generic, plain, simple cheapy kind of backpack but the, the 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 point of it is the print it's that print of the of that picture of the figures all standing next to each other you know side by side so that, that's kind of interesting also around this time i believe uh, similar to the ottoman there were some plastic glasses put out also either target or or, or came one of those two that maybe they were around easter time a couple years ago i never got to i saw pictures of them on the internet but i never got to see them on my store and i was never able to find them online so yeah there was a there, there was a definite push you know for that kind of thing and Last year, which I own right now, a company called DateWorks. Uh, DateWorks put out a 2019 calendar, uh, which I have in my office. Uh, and it is basically uh, action figures and ships, Kenner, displayed or positioned in a way of they're kind of either telling a little joke to each other or that sort of thing, you know, kind of like funny, funny, funny comments to each other. And, and some of them actually even have, a, a, you know, the, the little, the little word bubble next to them on the picture. This one is a little strange because one of the things that happens on some of these, and you're like kind of, it makes you like wonder sometimes is like, are these people for real? Like, like for example, in this calendar, Luke, the poncho Luke, the Endor Luke doesn't have the poncho. Even on the backpack, there is a poncho Endor Luke without the poncho. So that kind of makes you wonder, you know, are these people aware that you're missing the poncho? Or are they are they not like real fans? They're just making which is it's very possible. Which brings you back to this whole vintage exploitation title, you know, to this kind of uh, manufacturing of products. You know, are these people not knowledgeable enough to understand that you don't have the full product, that you're only displaying a portion of the product? Well, the same thing happens with this calendar. This calendar, for the most part, is pretty accurate. You know, the, the figures are more or less pretty accurate. But every now and then you do find something like, wait a minute, he's missing the, the cape, or he's missing the poncho, or he's missing this or that. And there's actually a shot, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I forget what month it is, that you have uh, Leia and R2, and it's supposed to kind of recreate the shot of, of Leia putting the uh, stolen plans in R2's databank. So she's kind of leaning towards him. And the R2 that they have on display is a three-legged R2. And you would say to yourself, if you're a real crazy vintage collector, you could say, well, they could have used the R2 from the, uh, from the uh, Jawa playset. 
you know, from the droid factory. But it's not. It's a modern R2. You know, a modern Hasbro R2 that has a third leg. So, I mean, it could have been, for all we know, it could have been the one of the first waves of, of Kenner ones, you know, the, the when they were still under the two, you know, the Kenner Hasbro banner. But it just doesn't fit right. It doesn't look right. You, if you're going to do a calendar with every, you know, just about vintage, you better use a vintage R2, even if he doesn't have that third leg. You got to put a vintage. But anyway, again, this is fanboy, you know, craziness we're talking about here. <laughs> But yeah, this is the type of stuff that you makes you wonder, you know, is this an error or is this done on purpose? You know, if it's an error, then it kind of shows your hand that whoever's manufacturing these things, they don't really care about the quality. They just want to put it out there because they're trying to capitalize on the vintage aspect of it. And the uh, the last one that I'm going to mention today is a puzzle, a company called Buffalo. Uh, recently, put out a whole wave of Star Wars puzzles. And I've never been a puzzle collector. I never had the patience to tell you the truth. Even though I recently, I don't know, a year ago or two, bought an original Star Wars puzzle. And I think I've talked about it in one of our shows. But what got my attention was that they put out a series of puzzles. And one of them is, once again, Kenner action figures. All of them standing side by side to create a very colorful image of a lot of action figures. This is a thousand-piece puzzle, so this is a big one, and uh, sooner or later I'm going to probably build it, maybe. But while I was there, they also had two other puzzles that I bought, nothing to do with vintage. One of them is a McQuarrie painting, uh, the Luke versus Vader, the original one. And the other one is a series of Star Wars posters, a lot of posters next to each other, overlapping each other, you know, from classic film to teaser posters to... You know, you name it, all types of Star Wars poster art, that's the puzzle. But again, the one that really got me interested is the vintage looking one. Another one that I almost forgot, I believe was a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive very recently. It might have been the last year's, it's very possible. And it's funny because it's really a reaction figure, the ones I was talking about earlier, specifically the alien line of reaction and action figures. What they did is they took the alien figure, okay? You follow me? The alien figure, and they repainted it to match Hammerhead's colors, the original Kenner Hammerhead. So you're talking about brown head, brown arms, brown legs, but a bluish kind of torso to kind of simulate the the, the, the unitar <laughs> that Hammerhead's character wears in the action figure. So you got to remember... It's not screen accurate, it's action figure accurate. So in this particular case, once again, they are specifically not only making you think of Star Wars, they're specifically making you think of the Kenner line, the Star Wars Kenner line. Now, what's cool about this is that, again, if this is your type of thing, great. What some people did was, and I've, I saw it online, They, I guess they bought extra generic alien f- reaction figures and they colored them with the rest of the original Cantina alien colors. So you have a Walrus Man colored alien, a Greedo colored alien, you know, I, they might have even done a Snaggletooth, I'm not entirely sure. But they, they kind of did that, which is kind of cute, how they kind of, you know, take the one thing that they make official, and then they branch off and make their own. Again, what is the purpose of this? I guess it's to, hopefully it rings a bell in in a vintage collector and it, and it makes them fork down you know however much amount of money. Now this was I, I like I said I think this was an exclusive, so I don't think this was as cheap as as the ones you find in the store. So this is the subject that uh, you know I wanted to kind of bring up to you guys, and this is something that leads us now to what's coming up very soon that I haven't yet decided exactly what I'm going to get, and we talked about them few episodes ago, and that is the retro line of Star Wars figures, you know, that people are, they either love them or hate them. You know, once again, we have not only, I think it's six figures that are coming out, you know, half of the original 12, and uh, also a box set of the Attack on the Death Star that will include the never-before-released Tarkin figure. Now, the Tarkin figure is interesting because if you think about it, If it was never released, then you cannot claim that you're exploiting it. However, the fact that it's being released on a card that looks vintage-y, the figure itself is the Kenner style, so you you understand what they're doing. The other six figures, on the other hand, we talked about this. They're purposely a little different. 
the size will be slightly different, so not to not confuse people that are not into this whole thing. The manufacturing stamp looks different. The date is different. Uh, the packaging looks different. There's things that make it look different, but they still look a lot alike. So my thought, and again, I'm not sure if I'm going to go through with this, is I, I would like to get just one. I want to get one representation of this. And most likely, I think what I would do if I if, if I find it, I'll get a Luke because the Luke is the the main character, you know, of Star Wars, and it's the main first figure if you really think about it. And I might consider getting the Tarkin because even though I do have a custom Tarkin, I would love to have a version of what Kenner or Hasbro at this time would produce a Tarkin like. Uh, unfortunately, I have to buy the the whole box game in the process, so. We'll see what happens. The other two figures that they've announced, once again, you know, it's, and I, I talked about these, I believe, when I was uh, doing my um, celebration recap show. They are putting out a six inch Boba Fett, you know, a black line Boba Fett that is colored like the Kenner Boba Fett. So again, we're back to this whole thing of, now, now this is coming from Hasbro. This, this is what's interesting. This isn't some other offshoot company. This is Hasbro now finally getting in the game of really, really go. I mean, not again. Not only are they going strong with the retro figures, you know, they're officially telling you that they're creating something on purpose. But now they're going to take a six-inch figure and repaint it so it it matches the original colors, which is an offshoot in a way of what's happening with some of these other things. Remember, that original Funko uh, Pop where they just repainted it the right way. It's a different way of, of, of hitting you with that information, with that kind of nostalgia, if you will. You know, I'm probably going to buy that one if, if it's reasonably available and priced because I do love the, the the Boba Fett. And I was talking about this a while back. I was talking about it, about it, you know, how in the past they have done these, you know, the prototype Boba Fetts and even the, the animated Boba Fett from the holiday special. And I kept saying how all it would take is them to repaint the figures, you know, and some of us will buy them and we will. And I even got as a present, and I talked to you guys about it, the Boba Fett that is supposed to be the one in the carrying case, the one that is a is a complete, more or less kit bash Boba Fett, you know, this is like serious, serious work. This isn't just a repaint. This thing is sculpted and molded and put together, you know, by hand to uh, represent that. That is some serious, serious customizable material. In this case, we're just talking about repaints here. So it doesn't take much. It really doesn't take much to take an original Kenner mold for Boba Fett and repaint it in different manners. But granted, that's not what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing here is what they've done in the past, and that is you take the existing mold and all you're doing is repainting them. And that's what they're going to do. Don't be surprised if sooner or later they'll take a three and three quarter inch modern Hasbro Boba Fett and repaint that too. Don't be surprised because it doesn't cost much for them to do that you know the mold is already done it's just a matter of repainting the other thing they're doing is something that is a little more obscure and creative and a little nuts i think and that is they are going to produce the i think they're calling it the first shot darth vader and that is going to be a Darth Vader, and again, I was a little confused before. I think it's a three and three quarter inch Vader, but the sculpt is like the original Kenner. You know, it's not a modern looking Vader, but each limb will be a different color to represent the first shots, which is the, you know, when they're first testing out the molding and how they look and how they fit, they use whatever colors are available to create these individual parts of the figure. And they kind of cobble them together and see how they fit and how they work. And then when they really, really agree that this is working, this is functional, then they go for the real color, which is all black in Vader's case. But the first shots, if you study and if you look at the history of first shots, you, you will notice that, yeah, the, the, you might have yellow arms or red uh, legs or whatever, whatever color is available, they'll just use whatever color. Well, they're purposely doing this. They are purposely building these different color combination. Not, not only that's the other thing, they're combining them. They're, they're mixing them up so that there are different combinations that are going to be out there available of a first shot looking Vader. Now, this is something that is not only is it vintage, but it's vintage weird because it's vintage super niche in terms of you have to be a really deep, deep, deep 
kind of collector to even understand, you know, what is the point of these funky colors. So I, I was very surprised that they went in that direction. Again, this might be just a test to see them trying to figure out how crazy are collectors. You know, are they really, really that crazy? You know, are, are only the people that are into that sort of thing going to buy them? Or are people that are into vintage, period? You know, they don't care exactly what constitutes vintage. Granted, again, with our topic, this isn't real vintage. This is a reproduction of something that looks vintage, uh, which you know brings us back to the subject of this discussion. But in the meantime, uh, I, again, I strongly recommend give the uh, the Kivecast a, a try. If you're really, really into vintage, those guys, they really know their stuff. And man, do you go down some areas that you probably never imagined existed. Because that show, you know, is an offshoot of the Collector's Archive, the Star Wars Collector's uh, Archive, that archive is like the source out there for collecting in terms of just about anything that's been manufactured. They have pictures and they have descriptions and they have at least a brief history of how this thing came about. Prototypes, things that were never manufactured, the process, all this weird stuff, you know, again, having to do with the original Kenner line, it's there. You can, you'll see it. Toys, puzzles, banks, whatever, action figures, small, large, ships, playsets, you name it, they have it. So these guys do have a good pipeline, if you will, of information when it comes to what they're talking about. And some of these facts that they find out are really, really good, really, really obscure, and you're like... You, it's, it's amazing sometimes the, the, the information that, that comes out of these guys. So keep your eyes open because I don't think this subgenre of Star Wars uh, marketing, uh, manufacturing, merchandising, that's a better word, is going to stop. And, uh, you know, the popularity of people wanting, you know, vintagey looking stuff, you know, being able to get that feeling again of something being so vintagey old is prompting other companies, you know, to. Obviously, they have to license this stuff. They just can't do it on their own. So they are licensing, you know, all this old-style Kenner, you know, material, you know, in different and unusual ways. So if this is something that you're interested, there are places to start. There is enough material out there already. You know, if this is going to be one of your focus collections, there is a whole bunch of items that I just mentioned here today that you might want to start exploring. You know, I, I believe there might even be a poster of not all, but some of the action figures out there. I didn't, I didn't get it. I forget what store. But again, might might be one of these Walmart things where they, they, they put pictures of, of a lot of figures, not all of them. But that's when it gets a little tricky is when you start to notice errors or mistakes or, or things that are not included. That's when you start to wonder if these guys are for real or not. You know, is it somebody who's trying to make a quick buck or somebody who's really, you know, trying to honor, you know, that subgenre of collecting enough so that they can properly, you know, represent it? You know, when you have these books and, you know, if you go and dig up your Sansweet books and stuff like that, you know, all these older books that try to chronicle, you know, Star Wars collecting, especially the, the, the original trilogy collecting. A lot of these books go into super, super detail. A website like the Star Wars Collector's Archive that's like your college course in, in how to, you know, research, you know, what's what's real, what's not real, what's accurate, you know, how did this come about? There are certain books put out there, and they're still putting them out. I mean, like I said, uh, Gus Lopez and, and some of his friends, they put out a couple of books about, I think, prop collecting and the actual figure manufacturing, how the, you know, how these figures were put together by Kenner, the different prototypes and stages that the figures go through. He's got books on that. And there are other books, I believe, coming. I could have swore I saw one. There, there's books about manufacturing in Spain, manufacturing, you know, in in different countries specifically. A lot of people are, are, are being getting very specific about all these things. And I believe there's a book also floating around now about uh, just about Kenner, just about the Star Wars side of Kenner. The, the structure, you know, the company structure, how the deal came about. It's more of a historical kind of book. So unfortunately, a lot of these books, they're very expensive because they're self-published. So the, they're not the type of thing you find in Amazon for, for a super cheap price. Some of these books are going to cost a little more than, than your average book. You, you know, you, they might be about 50 bucks a pop or more sometimes. So yeah, it's a little difficult sometimes, uh, you know, being able to afford them. But the information is fantastic on these books. So 
keep your eye out. And, you know, as I continue to gather more and more things that kind of pop up here or there, you know, I'll, I'll keep everybody updated on what else is, out, you know, what else comes out that might be of interest to you guys when it comes to vintage exploitation. I, I, that's an interesting word. And, and it's kind of difficult to say sometimes. <laughs> without messing it up but you know like i said i'll put up all the links for you guys to be able to find where all this stuff came from you must burn the books montag the books have nothing to say when i was your age television was called books you mr bemis are a reader a, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. I want to talk about a book I recently read, which is The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. This is part of a series of paperbacks, novels that I've been buying over the last, I don't know, three years, more or less. Uh, and this is kind of one of these side collections in a way that I've been involved with recently. Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny how you, you find uh, a certain niche, a certain thing, and then you start focusing on it and focusing on it, it with, with the intensity of a, of a collector, of a, of a fanboy, you know, that kind of thing. Granted, my particular genre is usually in the sci-fi horror, you know, adventure realm. <laughs> as it is with my films and my television viewing. But what I've been doing uh, for a while now is picking up tie-in novels or original novels that films were based on or television shows or that sort of thing. And next thing you know, I got I got a ton of these, uh, you know. Specifically, I'm looking for stuff that is a little off to the side in terms of my, you know, rabbit interest. So for example, obviously, you know, I'm going to have all my Star Wars books because, you know, I'm a Star Wars guy. I'm going to have all the Star Wars conceivable things that have to do with the film. But I then kind of branch out to all these movies that I've watched in the 80s, in the 70s, you know, from those periods, from those important periods, and started you know, picking up these novels uh, along the way. And, and every now and then I will do a review on a novel based on a movie. Well, The Exorcist is a little different because The Exorcist obviously was a, a book first that then became a movie. And I had seen the movie before, and it is, you know, a top-notch horror in terms of, you know, how important it is in the history of horror films for the time where it was when this movie was released in the early 70s you know it was a shocking shocking film in terms of the things that take place and the certain scenes that happen in the movie but i had never read the book and as usual you know this always happens well sometimes happens let's say where the book is so much richer it's so much a full of information and sequences that you really don't get in the movie because the movie only gives you usually like, you know, like an hour or two to compress all this information. But with the book, what I found is, and again, it's one of these books that, you know, sometimes you have a really good book on your hands and you really, really enjoy that period of time, whether it's a 20-minute stretch of reading or a half hour or even more. But this particular book was one of these books that, you know, that, that I actually would make time in the middle of the day, like on a weekend, for example. Instead of sitting down to watch TV, I would just sit down to read, and it would give me a good hour or hour and a half of reading. And, you know, you can get a lot done. You can get a lot of reading done in that amount of time. I'm not going to go into the story of the book because the book is you know, the story is, is if you're a horror fan, you know, you know what The Exorcist is all about and how it has inspired so many other films and so many other stories and so many other subgenres almost. I mean, even up to now, you know, you have all these, the exorcism of blah, 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 or this or that, you know, to this day, this particular subject, I don't want to say it's being mimicked, but it's being pursued, you know, to such detail in a way that... The film, The Exorcist, was kind of like the prototype of how these stories would be told in the future. Well, one of the things that I really enjoy about the book is that 
it does go so much deeper into all of the scenes. And the book itself, what's amazing about it is that I would say you go through about three quarters of the book, two thirds of the book, without it going completely haywire, where you have the full blown, you know, possession sequences towards the end. The book really takes its time, you know, analyzing minuscule little incidents and how they increase and become more dangerous every time. It also catalogs extensively the scientific medical steps that are taken by different branches of medicine to examine what's happening with this girl. You know, you go from the from the doctors who are physically trying to examine her, her brain, you know, everything about her, which, again, the movie does this to a certain extent. But again, with the movie, you know, once I watch the movie a second time, and granted, let me, let me explain something. What I recently watched after reading the book is what's called the director's cut that added another 15 minutes, I think, to the film. The film itself was obviously 15 minutes less, so it was about two hours, I think, something like that, maybe a little under two hours. But even by watching the director's cut, there's so much more that had to be removed originally from the movie, you know, for, for pacing purposes, because, you know, this, this book could have turned into a, a you know, a, a six-hour movie if you really, you know, go in that direction. But with the book, you're able to go through all these different steps where they, you know, they, they hit all of the physical doctor tests of what's wrong with her. And as that's continuing, you have these other subplots happening. You know, in the beginning, you have a pretty interesting sequence uh, where you have Father Marin, who, d- who doesn't come back till way later in the story, you know, conducting these uh, this archaeological dig in Iraq and finding these unusual sculptures and how he kind of starts to feel the tide is turning something's changing something's happening which then brings us to georgetown where the whole story takes place and again while this woman and her daughter are having this issue and you know the woman is she's an actress so she's living a different kind of lifestyle she's the father is not around i think they might be divorced so how her life is starting to change because of these problems with her daughter, these medical issues. But by the time we get to the part of the story where, okay, things are starting to move, there are certain things are starting to happen, including uh, the death of the director of the film that she is uh, working on, which for timing purposes, I guess, it was changed in the film. In the movie, it happens a little earlier and the film happens a little later. Uh, so the connection is made sooner in the book when it comes to, wait a minute, something just happened. We also meet a policeman, a detective, who is investigating the death of this director. But at the same time, he's also investigating a series of desecrations that have taken place in a nearby church, which is how we get to him meeting Father Karras, who is more or less the secondary star of the film, if you will. So you, you have like these three things happening at the same time that are all connected. And in the book, they manage to kind of continue with these things and they really explore them pretty deep in the book. You know, this investigation that's going on with these desecrations, you get into a lot of detail, a lot of research of what is happening. You know, the police officer researching this and digging at Father Karras and then getting involved also with the family, which is uh, Chris is the mother and Reagan is the daughter. He never really, <laughs> he never really meets Reagan because she's always, you know, in her room and in, in the bed, but he's dealing with her mother, you know, trying to investigate the death of uh, her director. And one of the more interesting things uh, that I found when I read the book, because remember, I had seen the movie bef- a long time ago before, but when I read the book, the book felt very rich and it felt very full. Like you're wa- you're reading it and it's like you're, it's, it's almost like you're like a TV series, you know, like something that continues and continues and continues and it's good. But one of the things I noticed right off the bat that I never got the, the feeling from watching the film was that the detective, which is Kinderman, is Lieutenant Kinderman, his mannerisms from reading the book screamed, just completely screamed to me, Columbo. And it was a little distracting in a way, but it was also very comforting because I am such a huge fan of Columbo. 
how these two are so similar. His approach, his his nagging questions, his his faked stupidity, if you will, like somebody who's behind the ball, but he's really ahead of you, but he's pretending to be behind the ball to get you, you know, to to come out and, and give him information. That is something that was just screaming at me while I'm reading any sections, you know, where he comes into the story. And it actually made me want to do a little research afterwards, which I did, which is there's not a lot. There's not a lot of stuff on it. But there were apparently many, many, many comparisons between the character of Columbo and the character of Kinderman. Now, it is very difficult to kind of sort out why. Is it coincidence? Is it a little bit of plagiarism on one side or the other? Who knows? Because it all seemed to happen around the same time. This book was put out in 71, I think. And Columbo kind of started in, I think it was 68 or 69. It was right around that time. And there are interviews with Blatty, who, and now you got to remember also, Blatty was an interesting individual. And according to Blatty, if you listen to some of his interviews or his uh, commentaries, uh, especially on the DVD that I just watched, the director's cut version, you know, which I think came out maybe around 2000, 2001, something like that. I don't remember exactly. He, even though has no direct proof, he kind of links it to that time frame where he was pitching apparently a story or the rights to be able to spin off that character. Uh, which is a little hard to understand because it's like, wait a minute, was this even before the book was sold that he already was that far along in negotiating, you know, the rights to additional stuff having to do with the book where he wanted to spin off the detective character into something else, possibly for television. And that kind of went nowhere. But then around the same time is when Columbo started kind of showing up and the comparisons are just amazing how close uh, these two characters are. Now, granted, uh, Columbo does have a history of existing way, way before The Exorcist in a different manner. He apparently, like even 10 years, over 10 years earlier, uh, the character of Columbo, obviously not Peter Falk's version of Columbo, but a different actor was part of a live show that was um, presented on television. Again, completely different style. It, it apparently became a play at some point with the character of Columbo. And then after the play, it jumped to television with a pilot. Then, then, then they did a second pilot. And I believe the first pilot with Peter Falk is still out there. And you could see he's not exactly 100% there yet. But by the second pilot, I believe, is when they actually when you actually do see the more finesse, if you can call Columbo finesse, describe him in that manner, but the, the more of the character we're used to seeing. And if you then compare the dates, yeah, it is all around that time within a, you know, within a one, two year difference of seeing it. Now, if you watch the movie, I don't get it. If you watch the actor who portrays Kinderman, who is Lee J. Cobb, who's been deceased for a very long time now, I never got that feeling. I never got the feeling that, oh, he's doing a Columbo impression or anything having to do with Columbo with that character. Never got it. But by reading the book, it was just screaming at me, Columbo. Now, what's also ironic, bizarrely ironic, again, or coincidental or whatever you want to call it, is that that actor was also the first actor to be considered to play Columbo <laughs> in the television show. I think they said something like him, uh, Bing Crosby, and then Peter Falk. But, the you know, he turned down the role because he was too busy doing other stuff. But it's kind of like, wait a minute. They wanted him, but they didn't get him. The movie gets him. He plays the character, but but the character sounds like, an, in the book, like Columbo, who later is played by Peter. You, it's really difficult to kind of wrap your arms around the sequence of events or how it really happened. Again, in another interview, Blatty claims that he actually got to talk to Peter Falk at one point, and Falk completely denied that, you know, he based his character on the written character of Kinderman, and, and Blatty was kind of like, I think he's saying, like, uh, that he, he still does, doesn't believe it. He still didn't believe Falk either. <laughs> but again, Blatty was a, 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 an unusual, uh, I don't know if you want to call it eccentric, he was a character. 
I believe he was involved in so many lawsuits also with the TV, uh, the, the film studios and all kinds of things. So he was a, a character to begin with. But you can't take away the fact that he did write this character in that manner. Uh, and I could not imagine uh, him being able to steal that character. In other words, um, there was no representation exactly at the time of Columbo in that manner. But did, you know, did uh, Universal somehow, <laughs> you know, crib his character? Hard to say. Hard to say. But that was something that, again, when I'm reading the book, I'm like, wow, how is this possible? And it was just, I mean, if I'm able to pick it up, I'm sure a lot of people were able to pick it up. And then when you, you know, you do some research on the internet, you start to find that, yeah, a lot of people are comparing him to that character. And I think this is something that's been kind of uh, following him around, you know, all these years that it's like, uh, hey, did, did, did you have anything to do with Columbo? And I guess that's some, the type of thing that he doesn't, he wasn't very happy about having to explain all the time that no, that he suspected that the character was stolen <laughs> from his book. But uh, I definitely recommend the book, even without the movie. And grant, granted, again, this is not a because this is not a movie adaptation. Uh, you know, the more traditional kind of books that I've been reading, it is rich. It is so rich. This book is so rich. Even today, it's shocking the things that happen in this book, the things that are discussed in this book. So if 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 today is still a pretty shocking book, and the movie, yeah, man. Wow, that movie, like I said, there are certain scenes that, and the book gets even more detail of those shocking scenes. But wow, for for audiences in the in the early seventies, you know, I, I was I must have been I don't know this I must have been like two three years old when the when the movie came out. Wow, yeah, there's no denying why this movie was so controversial and. I, I, you know, I'm still shocked that 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 it was able to be put on, uh, you know, without so many restrictions. I believe it. I, I think it did go through a certain period of, uh, you know, the, the the rating issues and that sort of thing. And I don't know exactly if they had to actually cut it down a little bit. Uh, you do have uh, uh, sequels to this uh, film and even to to this book. Uh, I, I know there's a, there's a there's a Exorcist two, which I, I'm pretty sure nobody was involved. Neither uh, Blatty or Freakin, the director of the film, didn't want anything to do with the sequel. I know there's a third film, uh, which is kind of good. It's uh, it's it's really creepy. Uh, and I think they were, he was involved, uh, the, the, the writer was involved. And then there was another book or another movie made called Legion, which had to do more, I think, uh, more like a prequel to everything. Uh, so, you know, those are one, those are a couple that I might have to, to explore at some point. I really don't want to watch the second film because I hear it's so bad, but, it, you know, I, I might have to see it just for the sake of kind of getting it over with so I can talk about how bad it most likely is. But again, this is one of these uh, books that, is a pleasure to read and it gives you so much more uh, than the, the you know it's one of those situations where you say well the book is so much better than the film but that all by saying that it's almost like you're giving it a negative connotation to the film it's like oh the film was ah but the book is just great no the film is great the book is just better it's it's even more than great so you can't go wrong with this if you're not a patient individual just watch the film I would say watch the uh uh, the director's cut, if possible. If not, just watch the regular cut. You know, it'll flow a little faster. Uh, I, I don't see any flaws in the director's cut in terms of feeling like the movie's slowing down or anything. It's a, It builds. The movie builds layer by layer. It's just that those layers and those B and C stories within the entire story being told, they're just not as rich in the film because you don't have the time to go deep into those in the book you do in the book you do have a little more time to kind of fill in those gaps but you you just you you really can't go wrong with it so i i strongly recommend you know picking up the book again this is an old book you pick it up in a used bookstore you can get it for a dollar sometimes <laughs> or three or four bucks on ebay and hopefully it will uh you know kind of pique your interest into wanting to read or watch the other chapters of this particular storyline that's being told all right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We had a combination of two very different subjects. On one hand, we were looking at vintage exploitation, you know, all of these <laughs> Star Wars items that are coming out that have come out even in the past, you know, not as frequent as they seem to be coming out now, but in the past, you know, 
where items are purposefully made to look like something vintage. Some people love it, some people hate it, you know, but it does seem to be ramping up now more than ever before. And I think it's because now, you know, the bigger companies are starting to understand that there's a market for that sort of thing. I just hope that by the time they jump in now, that that wave is already kind of crashing down. <laughs> so we'll see how, how uh, often these things continue to come out. Then we shifted gears and talked about the novel, The Exorcist. After watching and re-watching the film, the director's cut, you know, I kind of dove into the uh, the comparisons, uh, specifically with the detective in the novel, who seems to sound and feel a lot like Detective Columbo, but also a lot about how, you know, what a good novel this is, you know, standing on its own merit. Obviously, this was a novel first, it became a film second, so you don't have that reverse situation. You do have a lot of times where you're reading a, a, a an adaptation of a, of a script that gets turned into a novel. Here's the other way around. The novel came first. The novel is so much better. Again, not taking anything away from the film. The film is fantastic. The novel is just 10 times better. It's so much richer. I really can't wait to explore some of the future novels that were written specifically by Blatty and the films that he also directed afterwards having to do with The Exorcist. So we'll do that in a future episode. So on behalf of everyone here, thanks once again for listening and we will see you soon here at Geekfest Rant. Bye-bye, everybody. In 1999, it was voted the scariest movie of all time. It remains the most viscerally harrowing movie ever made. They got to absolve. The Exorcist, the most electrifying movie of the 20th century, returns in a thrilling expanded version with footage that has never been seen before. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. The version you've never seen. Exorcist. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone. Copyright 2019. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>